Good morning once again to you, First Baptist family. It's great to be here with you this morning. Now for an opportunity to look at God's Word. We're in the book of Daniel, which is um, one of the extraordinary books of the Bible, but I guess you could say that about every single one of them. Whatever one we're studying, that's the most extraordinary at the time, as far as I'm concerned. So Daniel is the one right now. And uh, it tells uh, the story through the perspective of Daniel, of what God did through this man in two great empires, the empire of the Babylonians and the empire uh, of the Persians, both of, for both of which Daniel served in the highest echelons of their governments. He is one that probably better than any other, maybe save Jesus alone, has shown us what does it look like for a person to be in the world at the highest possible level of the world's power, structures, and money, not to be affected by any of that, and instead to take on the values of God's kingdom and live them very authentically. No one shows us better than Daniel. And so that's what we're going to be studying this, um, this coming day. We're going to be in chapter 4, and in just a minute, we're going to be reading this passage together. But before we do, I'd like to first of all familiarize you with this poem. This is just the first lines of a very long poem, actually, by Francis Thompson. Um, this poem has significantly influenced the following people. G.K. Chesterton, if you've heard of him. J.R.R. Tolkien, the writer of the Lord of the Rings trilogy. John Stott, who was the Queen's, now deceased, the Queen's pastor. Fox News commentator Kirsten uh, Powers. And C.S. Lewis. They all said that this poem has had a huge impact on their lives. Here's how it starts. I fled him down the nights and down the days. I fled him down the arches of the years. I fled him down the labyrinthine ways of my own mind, and in the midst of tears, I hid from him and under running laughter. Each of these people that I mentioned and countless others have attested to the fact that they have a deep sense that when they became a Christian, they were not pursuing God, but God was pursuing them. Every one of these people and countless others have had the sense that God is like a dog, a hound after a hare. And God is in the business of seeking us. Because the Bible says very clearly, none of us seek God. He seeks us. In fact, it was C.S. Lewis who said, I did not want to become a Christian. He was an atheist. He said, but I had to. Because it just was the only way to make sense out of life. And then his famous line, he said, When I became a Christian, I was the most reluctant convert in all of England. So I didn't want to become a Christian. I had to. Why? Because there was a hound following him. As Sam mentioned to us, this week is a very, very significant date for Christians. It's 500 years since Martin Luther first posted those theses and stated that something is dead wrong in the church that takes the name of Jesus Christ. Something is dead wrong. And he had come to realize 
that we are justified not by our works, not by our seeking God, but by God's grace alone. And so we are the recipients of what are called the five solas of the the Reformation. Sola means only. Our source of authority is the scripture alone. Our centerpiece is Christ alone. We've come into relationship with Christ, not because of what we've done, but by His grace alone. We access God's grace by our faith alone. And all of this to the glory of God alone. Those are the five solas by which we stand as Protestants and have now for the last 500 years because of this man, this courageous man, who stood for these things. Now, the Reformation powerfully refocused the church not on what we do for God, but what God has done for us. That's what grace is all about. And now today, as we look at this chapter of Scripture, Daniel chapter 4, we're going to see one of the best accounts in all of the Bible, perhaps of all of history, of a, a man, King Nebuchadnezzar, whose life is a poignant reminder that God is the hound of heaven. Jeremiah, would you come and join me, please? And what we're about to do is we're going to read chapter 4. And please focus with us, if you will, on chapter 4. Oh, my. I lack a microphone. Do you have one, Ryan, for me somewhere? Oh, there we've got one. Thank you, Lynn. This chapter is mainly uh, two parts. Nebuchadnezzar speaks and Daniel speaks. Jeremiah is going to be Nebuchadnezzar. I'm going to be Daniel. Listen now to Daniel chapter 4. King Nebuchadnezzar, to the peoples, nations, and men of every language who live in all the world, may you prosper greatly. It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. I had a dream that made me afraid. As I was lying in my bed, The images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. So I commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be brought before me to interpret the dream for me. When the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners came, I told them the dream, but they could not interpret it for me. Finally, Daniel came into my presence, and I told him the dream. He is called Belteshazzar, after the name of my God, and the spirit of the holy gods is in him. I said, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and no mystery is too difficult for you. Here's my dream. Interpret it for me. These are the visions I saw while lying in my bed. I looked. And there before me stood a tree in the middle of the land. 
its height was enormous. The tree grew large and strong, and its top touched the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and on it was food for all. Under it, the beasts of the field found shelter, and the birds of the air lived in its branches. From it, every creature was fed. In the visions I saw while lying in my bed, I looked, and there before me was a messenger, a holy one, coming down from heaven. He called in a loud voice, cut down the tree and trim off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but let the stump and its roots, bound with iron and bronze, remain in the ground in the grass of the field. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man and let him be given the mind of an animal till seven times pass by for him. The decision is announced by messengers. The Holy One declare the verdict so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowliest of men. This is the dream that I, King Nebuchadnezzar, had. Now, Belteshazzar, tell me what it means, for none of the wise men in my kingdom can interpret it for me, but you can, because the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, was greatly perplexed for a time, and his thoughts terrified him. So the king said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its meaning alarm you. Belteshazzar answered, My lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries, the tree you saw which grew large and strong with its top touching the sky visible to the whole earth with beautiful leaves and abundant fruit providing food for all, giving shelter to the beasts of the field and having nesting places in its branches for the birds of the air, you, O king, are that tree. You have become strong and great. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky and your dominion extends to distant parts of the earth. You, O king, saw a messenger, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump bound with iron and bronze in the grass of the field while its roots remain in the ground. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live like wild animals until seven times pass by for him. This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree the Most High has issued against my lord the king. You will be driven away from people and will live with wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree and its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be 
that then your prosperity will continue. All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, Is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? The words were still on his lip when a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken away from you. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. Immediately, what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people and ate grass like cattle. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the power of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time that my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out, and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of Heaven, because everything he does is right, and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. There's the story, and now let's see some of the details. If you look at your Bible and if you look at what we've just read, you'll notice that it's written in a funny way. Most of this is written by Nebuchadnezzar. It's autobiographical. And he begins this chapter with telling us um, his conclusion and then he gets to the plot. Here's the conclusion. He's making a pronouncement to the people of his realm, which again is the largest kingdom in the world at the time, and he is the greatest leader. He's the most powerful man in the world. To the peoples, nations, and men of every language who live in the world, may you prosper greatly. It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are his signs, how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. That's his pronouncement. So apparently this went out in loudspeakers all over his realm. This is his pronouncement. Now, he's now going to tell us how he came to this. Why would he make such a pronouncement? Remember, he is the king of a polytheistic nation or, or kingdom or empire. 
that involves gods by the thousands of all the conquered peoples, and they assume all of them. But he acknowledges that there is but one most high God, and it happens to be the God worshipped by the Jewish people as represented by Daniel. And he says, I want you to know, everyone in my realm, that there is but one most high God, and he performs great signs and wonders. And how I know that? It's because of what he did to me. And now he's going to tell us what God did for him. I had a dream. Not like Martin Luther King Jr., I have a dream. I had a dream. Now, apparently God uses dreams to speak to a lot of people in the Old Testament and even sometimes in the New Testament. God used dreams. And dreams are a very powerful vehicle of people thinking they get messages from God in Bible times and even today. He had a dream. They believe deeply that dreams had significance beyond just something your mind does in the middle of the night. And here's what he said. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. Now, by the way, this is one of the chapters in Daniel that we don't have a date. It doesn't say, like, in the 20th year of King Nebuchadnezzar. If he had said that, we'd know exactly the date. But he doesn't say that. So we have to only guess. The best guess that people have is this takes place quite a number of years after the, the account of the fiery furnace where we were last week. Most people suggest that Daniel is now about 50 years old. He's a middle-aged man. He has been in his position as the prime minister of this country now for quite a few years. He is very, very successful, and his work has resulted in Babylon being the greatest city in the world, and the Babylonian Empire is at peace and extraordinarily prosperous. We're going to see how prosperous in just a minute. So he was at home in his palace, and all is going well. He's contented, he's prosperous, and there's peace. But he has a nightmare. I had a dream that made me afraid. As I was lying in my bed, the images and visions that passed through my mind they terrified me. So he has a nightmare, and you know what that nightmare is. He, he, he had this dream of this big tree, and they have found in Babylonian records that the Babylonian kingdom was compared to a large tree outside the Bible. And so that's one of the images that the Babylonian people uh, applied to themselves as, a, as an empire, just as we do as Americans to the eagle. The tree was theirs. He said, I had, a, I had a dream of a great big tree, a tree so big it went up to the heavens, a tree so, so large that all could find shade and sustenance under this tree. And this was his dream. But then he wanted to know what the dream meant. And so he, he asked for all of his wise men to come and to tell him what the dream meant. And of course, as you know here, the Bible tells us that they couldn't tell him. And it was Daniel that told him what the dream was. But many commentators suggest that they did understand what the dream meant. But they were not about to tell the king. And I think that's probably more likely. Because this one, you don't have to be very smart. I could figure this baby out. If, in fact, among the Babylonians, the tree was a symbol of their nation and the king is associated with the tree, you can kind of figure out what's going on. 
So they probably figured out what was going on. They said, oh, oh, king, we don't know what that one means. They did. But they aren't going to touch it with a 10-foot pole. Why? Well, you know what you do if you're in the presence of a king. You're a yes man. You tell the king what he wants to hear. The last thing you would ever do is give really bad news, especially if it applies to the king himself. But Daniel's a whole lot better than those people. And so the king says, my other uh, dream interpreters can't interpret it, Daniel, but you can. Here's my dream, and I want you to interpret it for me. Well, part of his dream is that the, the, the messenger from heaven comes in the dream and talks. And, and did you notice that during, as, as Jeremiah read that, did you notice how it switched from a tree to him? Did you see that? Now, it's talking about this tree, and then it switches all of a sudden, let him. So it's now very clearly in the dream, the messenger says that the tree is a him. And now we're going to find out who the him is. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. Let his mind be changed from that of a man, and let him be given the mind of an animal till seven times pass by for him. So this is a pretty scary dream because he knows that the tree is a symbol of Babylon and he knows that he's the tree and now the messenger says that the tree is a he. And of course, Daniel's going to say that that tree that's a he is you, O king. A little bit scary. And then the messenger says, in the dream, the decision is announced by messengers. The holy ones declare the verdict so that the living may know that the most holy, most high is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets them over the lowliest of men. So now the messenger not only said that the tree is a he, but then he says why this dream has been given. The dream has been given so that you may know, that he in the, in the dream may know that God is sovereign, the Most High God. Well, then Daniel, of course, is called to interpret it. This is the dream that I, Nebuchadnezzar, had. Now, Belshazzar, tell me what it means, for none of the wise men in my kingdom can interpret it for me, but you can because the spirit of the holy gods is in you. So what does he do? Daniel comes before the king, terrified. And he says, that tree, that is a he, is you. Whoa. Then Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, was greatly perplexed for a time. And his thoughts terrified him. Daniel's a realist. He knew, what the, he knew what the dream meant. And he knew that this, tree, this, this dream is not going to be good news to the king. And he knew that the king had the power to kill anyone he wanted at a whim. And now Daniel's got to be the one who delivers the bad news, which actually is going to be good news. But the king doesn't know that. So the king said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its meaning alarm you. 
Because the king obviously picked up that Daniel didn't want to tell him what it meant. And so now Daniel speaks. My Lord. There is an affection between Daniel and King Nebuchadnezzar. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar is the very one who took his people out of their homeland, who took Dan, who kidnapped Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. It was this very king who stripped the whole promised land of its Jewish people, brought them to Babylon. This very king who did such harm to the Jewish people, Daniel has a good relationship with him. My Lord. If only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. The tree you saw, which grew large and strong with its top touching the sky, visible to the whole earth with beautiful leaves and abundant fruit, providing food for all, giving shelter to the beasts of the field and having nesting places in its branches for the birds of the air. You, O king, are that tree. You have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky, and your dominion extends to the distant parts of the earth. Well, this is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree of the Most High that has been issued against my lord, the king, you will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. Well, Daniel says, this dream is mainly about you. What's going to happen to you is you this king who rules millions of people, you are going to be alone. And you, this king who thinks you're so high and mighty and eats all this delicious food, is going to start to eat grass. And you, who dwell in a palace, are now going to live outside for a time. And you, who are an arrogant king, are going to learn to bow your knee before God. So Daniel says, King, do right now what I tell you. Fall on your knees before the living, holy, most high God and repent of your sins. Let's have a prayer meeting. Well, he doesn't say that. I made that up. This is one of the great verses of the Holy Scriptures from the prophet Micah. It's one of those few places in the Bible where God uses very few words to sum up huge amounts of Scripture. God has shown you, O oh man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you? That should be a question we should all ask ourselves. What does the Lord require of us? 
three things. To act justly, to love mercy, and most important of all, to walk humbly with your God. Now Daniel practices all three of these more than almost anyone else who's ever lived. But Nebuchadnezzar practices none of them. And we're going to see what happens. The next step may surprise you. He's going to be driven away from his people, but watch what it says first. God's word says in Proverbs, pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Now look at the next words, very important. Twelve months later. This is one full year after he has the dream that terrified him, that is interpreted by Daniel, that is personalized, and Daniel even gives the application, Oh, king, repent right now. What did he do? Nothing. He got worse. Look what happens next. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and it is said that the palace of Nebuchadnezzar is the greatest palace that has ever existed in human history. The greatest. He said, Is not this the great Babylon I have built as my royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? Now, you can pick up a little bit of pride in that statement. <laughs> That's what he said. These are some artists' depictions of what they think Babylon looked like. This is the, what's considered the Hanging Gardens of Babylon. It's built right on the Euphrates River. It's an incredible building. There's another picture of it. Um, this is one of the greatest wonders. Uh, Babylon had two of the greatest wonders in the ancient world. Two of them. They took one of them away when the lighthouse of Alexandria was built and they made that the new of seventh wonder of the world. But two of them were in Babylon. This um, is just a, a picture of some of the walls. There were wall complex after wall complex. I've told you before that the, the, the one, the outer wall was a, a hundred feet across. You had a six-lane highway on top of the wall around the whole city on the river like this. And this is the Ishtar gate here. This is the eighth gate into the city, that gate right there. And I've told you, um, I've seen it many, several times in Berlin. The small gate, which is 45 feet high, and this is the eighth gate complex into the city. That gate is 45 feet high. I don't know how tall this is, but it's much taller than this. And in Berlin, they have both the small one and the big one, but the big one's too big to reconstruct in the building. So they've only reconstructed the little one. And remember, that's the eighth gate. You're dealing with a city so magnificent, we can't even imagine what it looked like. This is what it looks like today. It's been that's 45 um, feet high. That's, we still have it. This place was a magnificent, magnificent place. And that's why King Nebuchadnezzar said, look what I've made. When I took over, there was nothing here. But now look what I've made, look what I've done. 
Well, God wasn't real pleased. I don't know, you know, Friedrich Nietzsche, the great philosopher. He's the one who said that um, he hated humility. He said that, that humility is one of the, the, the most worth, worthless characteristics of, of human beings. He, he ridiculed it. He said, no, the, the, what human beings should do, should be, is we're all about aggressive pride. We're Superman. And this is what he said of himself. I am not a man. I am dynamite. My truth is fearful. Can you imagine someone saying that? That's what Nietzsche said, and that's basically what Nebuchadnezzar said. Now, if I was God, if you were God, I'm glad we're not, what would you do with this clown? You'd probably use that dynamite <laughs> on him. But God's not that way. Thankfully, we're not God. Thankfully, he's a whole lot better than we are. Now, what's God going to do with a man like Nietzsche, Nebuchadnezzar, who are so incredibly arrogant. I mean, I'd blow them off or blow them away. God doesn't do either. This is in Proverbs. There are six things the Lord hates. Seven that are detestable to him. And number one on the list, haughty eyes. Pride is not something that goes well with God. Now, what does pride mean? Pride is not deriving legitimate pleasure from a job well done. That is not pride. It can be, but it's not necessarily. Pride is not reasonable and responsible self-esteem. That's not pride. Pride is not being content. Pride is not having an accurate assessment of oneself. That is not pride. But pride is allowing your success to go to your head. Pride is all about thinking that you are self-sufficient. Pride is all about refusing to acknowledge the goodness and the sovereignty of God. Pride is all about congratulating yourself for your accomplishments. Pride is all about self-promotion. Pride is all about me, and pride ultimately leads to self-righteousness. And God cannot tolerate that. So what is God going to do? Well, let's see. The words were still on Nebuchadnezzar's lips when a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like cattle. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. Immediately, what, he had been, what, what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people and ate grass like cattle. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. Now you see that and you go, hmm, interesting. I don't know if you know, but um, this is a very real mental illness diagnosis. It's called boanthropy. It's not common, but it's very real. And one of the people who identified it clearly was Sigmund Freud. And you can't believe what Sigmund Freud did. And I don't even know if he'd ever read the Bible. 
But Sigmund Freud, in his study of boanthropy, concluded that boanthropy is a result of a dream that a person takes seriously and it turns into a delusion. That's what Freud came up with. And that's exactly what happened to Nebuchadnezzar. He had a dream, which then he personified, and he becomes mentally ill and deluded. Now you might wonder, well, what happened to the kingdom? Well, I suspect what happened to the kingdom is that Daniel continued to run the kingdom as he had done when Nebuchadnezzar was still sane. And where was Nebuchadnezzar? I suspect Nebuchadnezzar was in one of the gardens of the palace, which would have been enormous in size for a period of time. And the bureaucracy continued to carry on in his more or less absence, though he would still be there. Well, it's William Blake's uh, picture of what Nebuchadnezzar might have looked like. Charles Beard, he was a historian, was asked to write a, a book, A Concise History of the World, and he said, oh, I can do that in four sentences. And here are his four. Whom the gods would destroy, they first make mad with power. Power corrupts. The mills of God grind slowly, but they grind exceedingly small. What goes around comes around. The bee fertilizes the flower it robs. So even as a flower is being robbed, things are going on for good. And when it's dark enough, you can see the stars. So that's, those are the four summary statements of all of human history. They're pretty good. C.S. Lewis said this, If anyone would like to acquire humility, I can, I think, tell him the first step. The first step is to realize that one is proud. And a biggish step, too. At least nothing whatever can be done before it. If you think you're not conceited, it means that you're very conceited indeed. <laughs> of course, Nebuchadnezzar probably didn't know that he was, but God was able to humble him. Those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Proverbs says, before his downfall, a man's heart is proud, but humility comes before honor. And as you know, it ends by Nebuchadnezzar saying, at the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my sanity was restored. Then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified Him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as He pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back His hand or say to Him, What have you done? At the same time, that my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out, and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of heaven because everything he does is right, and all his ways are just. And so what happens? Those who walk in pride... He is able to humble, and he did so. I suggest to you that we have in this chapter a beautiful tale of God's conversion of a very arrogant man. Remember, he began with a man who worshipped false gods. He's a polytheist. He doesn't, he doesn't even know anything about the God of heaven. But he is exposed by God's grace to good and godly people like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and Maybe us who are here. 
And then God in his mercy revealed things to Nebuchadnezzar through dreams, through visions, through Daniel, through experiences in life. And he applied his mind because Nebuchadnezzar saw that his wise men were miserable failures. And he saw that Daniel could figure things out. He saw that the gods of his people were impotent, but the God of Israel was powerful. He used his mind. He could see. He used his rational mind and could evaluate. There's something about these Jewish people and their God that is different than any of these other gods we have subjugated. And then he recognized the reality of God time after time after time through Daniel, through Shadrach, through Meshach, through Abednego, through the way that they were prospered by not eating the king's food, by how God saved them from the fiery furnace. And we're going to see in the next chapter how God saved him from the lion's den. Now he saw the reality of God. And then there was time, 20 or 30 years. God let this man live for 20 to 30 years, becoming more and more arrogant until he thought all of this great kingdom is a result of his work and not God's. God gave him time. So then what happened? God continued to hound him because God loved him. I would have given up on him. And then, through his mental illness, he became a broken man. And in his brokenness, he, can, he was convicted of his sin, that he was an arrogant man before the living God. And then he came to acknowledge the sovereignty of God and accepted God's grace. He confessed with his mouth that the true God was in fact the true God, who now he gave his praise to, rather than the gods of Babylon. And he ended up by worshiping the true God. I think the evidence is clear that Nebuchadnezzar one day will be at the foot of the throne of the living God. With us, I hope. Because the hound of heaven got him. And if the hound of heaven can get him, who can he not get? There's probably no more arrogant person on earth than Nebuchadnezzar. He had it all. But God loved him so much to give him the privilege of mental illness. God loved him so much that God put up with his arrogance for decade after decade. God loved him so much that he put into his life people who, who knew the real true God. God loved him so much that God gave him dreams and nightmares. God loved him so much that God restored him to his sanity and to his salvation. What about you? This is what the Bible says. The way to God, to conversion, like Nebuchadnezzar, is no different route. The difference is we know Jesus. It begins with an acknowledgement of your sin. And I believe that God's Holy Spirit has been working throughout the whole world for all time to get us to acknowledge our sin. God had to work real hard to get Nebuchadnezzar to do that, to acknowledge his sin. And he is not the one who made this kingdom great, nor are we. Acknowledge our sin. Then we believe that God is good and gracious and has sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to pay the penalty for our sin. 
And he showed his power by raising, being raised from the dead. And then we place our faith in what Jesus did on our behalf. That's what the Reformation is all about. We are justified by grace through faith. And we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It's the same for Nebuchadnezzar as for us. And so this day, as we pray in conclusion, maybe you don't know this Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe you're somewhere in the process as Nebuchadnezzar was. But this much I can tell you, Jesus said this, if you exalt yourself, God will humble you. But if you humble yourself, God is eager to lift you up. Let's pray. What a story, Heavenly Father, of your great love and grace. To think that you would hound a man so arrogant as Nebuchadnezzar and bring him into your fold is amazing, amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like Nebuchadnezzar and me. Oh, Father, I pray for this wonderful group of people here today, most of whom I'm sure have bowed our knees like Nebuchadnezzar did, but maybe some who have not. I pray that today would be a day of salvation, and they would be exalted by you as we humble ourselves before you. That's the work of your Holy Spirit, and it's your kindness that leads us to salvation. And for those of us that know you, may we glory in your goodness to us this day and every day as we pray in the name of the one who gave his life for our sin, Jesus. Amen.